Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you um, for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us by it now. We thank you that you truly are, um, that the substance belongs to Christ, that all other things that claim authority over our lives are but shadows and vapors. May we be grounded in you, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Well, friends, I mentioned last week um, that there are a number of different opinions as to who it is that's trying to, to delude these young Christians in Colossae, uh, and our passage today speaks of them being taken captive by, by philosophy and empty deceit. So uh, one of the things I want to do is just sort of run through in a little bit of detail who some of those uh, people might be. Some people think it was a form of, <coughs> pardon me, Jewish Christian mis- uh, Gnosticism, which is why there were so many references uh, to wisdom and knowledge and mystery in the letter. Uh, Paul is, is trying to combat this Gnosticism that claimed to have a special knowledge. That's what Gnosis means, knowledge, a special spiritual knowledge, uh, a special knowledge of spiritual mysteries, particularly that only they possess. For others, it, was, uh, it, it seems to be a, a Christianized mystery cult, and that's why there's so many references to the term mystery uh, in the letter. For others, it was a form of Jewish uh, mystical asceticism, which is why Paul talks about let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going on in detail about visions. So these ascetic practices. Um, there a group of people who are sort of um, obsessed with these ascetic practices are trying to pull the Colossians away from Christ. And for others, uh, it was just Hellenistic philosophy, which is why Paul talks about not being held captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions. There's more that could be said about each one of these uh, hypotheses, but I just wanted to sort of uh, make you aware of the various opinions out there and to also have a bit of an idea of where they come from. And I think you could sort of see each one. If you were to go through the passage again, you'd see each one in different times. Uh, I, of course, do not know for sure who it was that Paul had in mind when he was warning these young Christians to beware of those outside dangers. Um, but the, the, the conclusion that I, I think is the most helpful, I think is the most comprehensive, is N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright says that Paul was warning these young Christians about either potential Judaizers uh, or Jewish zealots in the area who would have told them, uh, like they did with the Christians in Galatia, they were basically halfway there. That it was good that they had turned to Jesus, but they also needed to be circumcised, and they also needed to keep the Torah. Right says this, Paul is warning the reader not to be taken, uh, to be taken in by the claims of Judaism, which would try as in Acts 15.5, to persuade the converts to Christianity that their present position was incomplete, that they were lacking something, specifically they're lacking circumcision and Torah keeping. And I think you could see that throughout the passage. So just a couple examples. Even even the beginning of the warning, which starts in verse 8, is a pun on the word synagogue. When it says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, the word captive there is almost identical in Greek to the word for synagogue. It's almost like Paul is saying, "See, see to it that no one takes you to the synagogue by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, lost in the English. So the warning begins with this clear pun, and then, of course, builds from there. It talks about the elemental spirits of the world, 
which is another term that Paul used in Galatians when he was dealing with this very same issue. So you can see that in Galatians 4, verses 1 through 11. It then speaks of being circumcised, uh, but of, which, of course, is a, a very, uh, is, you know, a marker of, of Judaism. But it says specifically that you have already been circumcised by the circumcision of Christ, which took place, Paul says, by the putting off of the body of the flesh, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So there's no need to be circumcised again. You've already received the circumcision of Christ. Verse 14 says that through the cross, Jesus was canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. A more literal translation of that would be, uh, he blotted out the handwriting that was against us, opposing it with its legal demands. Most scholars agree that this is a reference to the Jewish law, which prevented Gentiles from getting into God's people and condemned Jews for breaking its commandments. So it's a specific um, reference to the Torah here. And then, of course, it talks about food and drink regulations, festivals, new moons, Sabbath, all of which are central to Jewish life. So it seems likely to me that this, the threat was from a group of local Jewish people who were trying to convert these Christians um, into Judaism or a group of Judaizers within the area. Where Wright uh, nuances his argument a little bit is that he says that Paul is warning these ex-pagans against Judaism by portraying Judaism itself as if it were just another pagan religion. It's a philosophy, Paul says, developed by human tradition, and to follow it is to return to the same type of religion the new converts have recently abandoned. So there's a heavy dose of irony in this chapter as well, which is partly why you'll have these differing views, uh, I think, anyways. But I generally find that argument compelling. Uh, you don't have to agree with me, of course. Um, but I share that with you simply because I think it helps make sense of the chapter. And, and so as you're reading it over maybe this week, consider that. Could it be that this was a group of Judaizers or people who were um, trying to get these young Christians to convert to Judaism as you're reading this chapter and see if that makes sense to you? But regardless of who it is uh, exactly that this outside threat is coming from, the threat itself is clear. The threat is that these Christians are being tempted to believe that Jesus is not enough, that they need more in order to be saved and more in order to experience fullness of life, all that God has for us. And so Paul says in verses 9 and 10, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And there are a couple ways to think about this passage that I help, I think, I think sort of helps flesh out this idea that is Jesus, that Jesus is not enough. And the first is that Paul is very clearly saying that Jesus is God in all his fullness, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, as he said in the Colossians poem of Colossians 1. Jesus is the complete, you're not incomplete, he is the complete image of God. This speaks to both Jews and Gentiles. To his fellow Jews, Paul is saying that Jesus fully embodies the one true living God. And to Gentiles, he's saying that Jesus is not just another demigod or another God amongst the pantheon of gods. Jesus is the full image and expression of the one true God. 
Secondly, the language of fullness uh, could be replaced by completeness as a way to say that there is nothing lacking in Jesus and the salvation that you have received in him. Nothing needs to be added to it. It's full. It's complete. It cannot be added to. Jesus is the complete image of God, and you have received complete salvation in him. Thirdly, uh, Tom Wright says in his commentary, I think this is helpful, if you possess Jesus, therefore, you are already fulfilled in him, and no rule or authority can go, as it were, over his head and impose itself on you. For Jesus is the head of all. And so part of what Paul is getting at here is that uh, in Christ, you are free from the tyranny of anything else that tries to lay claim over your life and claim the place of authority that only belongs to Jesus Christ. There is freedom in Jesus because, as Paul says in verse 10, Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. He is over all. He is supreme. And we are in him. Therefore, we cannot be ruled by anything else. There is freedom in Jesus. Don't look for anything else. It will just enslave you. And then fourth, there's also something helpful in the, in the language of fullness as well, because it reminds us that it's not just religious systems that try to take the place of authority in our lives and offer us fullness of life, the good life, all that we're looking for. There are all sorts of other secular institutions or ideologies that try to lay claim to that as well. Buy this car and you'll have fullness of life. That's basically every advertisement you see out there. Retire by the age of 45, you will have fullness of life. Accumulate an enormous number of followers on social media, you will have fullness of life. Become an influencer or a person of influence in your profession, that's how you'll have fullness of life. The claims to fullness of life are myriad, but the call to us is to see the fallacy and the emptiness of all those claims, all those promises, and to recognize that fullness of life is only found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, one of the things I think is interesting about this passage is that Paul never directly denigrates these other systems of belief specifically. He's critical of them, but he doesn't denigrate them uh, and he doesn't den den denigrate the people who are tempted by them as well, these young Christians. He doesn't say you're wrong or you're an idiot for even being tempted by these things. Or maybe he says you're, they are wrong, but you're not evil for doing it. What he's recognizing is that there's, he's, he's claiming that there is a vapidness to these things. There's a certain emptiness to them. They're a shadow of the things that they long for, Paul says in verse 13, but the substance belongs to Christ. What I think undergirds that way of thinking is that Paul recognizes that all people were created in the image and likeness of God, and that all people are instinctively looking for God. That's why Paul started with this same point in Acts 17. He started with that point about the altar to the unknown God. He said, you're searching. I recognize that you're searching for God. You're looking for God. You're looking for purpose. You're looking for identity. You're looking for belonging. You're looking for safety. You're looking for security. You're looking for peace. 
And that's why Paul's not particularly critical in this passage. His tone is more, I think, compassionate and empathetic more than anything else in this passage. He's saying, I get it. I understand. I understand that you're searching. I know that you're looking for belonging. I know that you're looking for security, safety, peace, identity, purpose. I understand all that. I get it. But all of those things are only found in Jesus. Everything else, all those other places that claim to be offering those things that we are longing for are only a shadow of the real thing. The substance belongs to Jesus. Christ is where we find belonging. Christ is where we find safety. Christ is where we find identity and purpose. He is where we find the peace that surpasses all understanding. Jesus is where you find salvation and fullness of life. Jesus and nowhere else. And this is instructive for us for two reasons, I think. It's instructive because, one, we need this reminder for ourselves, if we're honest, I think. Because we are constantly being tempted to find our identity in our jobs or how influential we are. We're constantly tempted to find our sense of belonging by worldly standards and the approval of others. We're constantly tempted to find peace in our bank accounts or retirement plans or whatever it is. Those temptations are around us all the time. And so we need to hear this for ourselves. We need to take this into our own bones and our own soul, that security, peace, identity, belonging, purpose, they're all ultimately found in Jesus and Jesus alone. We still participate in the world. We exercise the gifts and the talents that God has given us for the benefit of all. We don't retreat from the world around us. But we know that our deepest sense of identity and belonging and purpose and all of that is only found in Jesus. He is the substance. The rest is vapor or shadows. And this is also instructive for us because it reminds us how I think we are to look and treat those around us as well as we walk alongside others. We're not called to look down on other people for not agreeing with us or for pursuing those, um, those same desires by other means. We don't look down on them. Instead, we come alongside them, recognizing that all of those longings and those desires that they have are good because they're God-given. But because they are God-given, they can only be satisfied in God himself. And so our calling, like Paul in this passage, is to say, I get it. I understand. I feel the same way, too. I feel that same longing for, for purpose and belonging and identity, all those things. But I promise you, the only way to truly satisfy those longings and desires are in Christ himself. For the substance belongs to Jesus. And so it's with this generous and compassionate heart that we look at the world around us, not with anger or bitterness or whatever it is, or competition. And I just want to say, we'll see next week that one of the very first markers of a transformed life, according to Colossians, is a compassionate heart.
And then lastly, I think what this passage reminds us of is that all these things that we're longing for, these deep desires of every human heart, they are already ours in Christ Jesus. That's the power of this passage as well. Not that they will be ours one day, but they are currently right now a present reality for all of those who are in Christ Jesus the Lord. That we have belonging, we have purpose, we have safety, we have security, we have peace in Christ Jesus now. And that's why the, the characteristic mark of the Christian life in Colossians is thanksgiving. Verses 6 and 7, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, past tense, this is something that you have already received, you're already in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up and established in the faith, being grounded on the, the true substance that is Christ, not being pulled by those shadows, those false promises out there, being rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, Paul says. So what Colossians 2 is teaching us is that there are all sorts of false idols out there, false ideologies, false promises, that will prey upon our God-given need for belonging, identity, purpose, all those things. But what Paul is saying is don't fall prey to those temptations because you already have belonging, identity, purpose, all of that in Jesus. It is a current reality for your life. You don't have to look anywhere else for it. You just have to walk in them. And that walking takes the shape of thanksgiving. What I'd like to do, uh, just by way of, of ending here, is I'd like to read to you Eugene Peterson's version of this passage. I'm going to start in, in chapter 2, verse 8, and go all the way to Colossians 3, 3. Tony, if you wouldn't mind pulling that up. Um, and I want you to notice a couple of things. I think it captures much of what we said today. I think he does such a great job in his translation here. But I want you to notice a couple of things. One, I want you to notice the all-sufficiency of Jesus. That everything we could ever long for is expressed in him. I want you to notice the current reality of our life in him. That the things that we desire and long for are already found in him. They are ours already. And three, one of the things I appreciate about the way that he translates this is the contemporary nature of the passage and how it reminds us that these, these temptations are just as present for us today as they were for our ancient brothers and sisters in the past. So I'll end with by going through this. Watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything. They spread their ideas through empty traditions of human beings and the empty superstitions of spirit beings, but that's not the way of Christ. Everything of God gets expressed in him so you can see and hear him clearly. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. When you come to him, that fullness comes together for you. His power extends over everything. 
entering into this fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. It's not a matter of being circumcised or, or keeping a long list of laws. No, you're already in. Insiders, not through some secretive initiation, right, but rather through what Christ has already gone through for you, destroying the power of sin. It's an initiation ritual. If it's an initiation ritual you're after, you've already been through it by submitting to baptism. Going under the water was a burial of your old life. Coming up out of it was a resurrection. God raised you from the dead as he did Christ. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right alongside with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. So don't put up with anyone pressuring you in details of diet or worship or, or uh, services or holy days. We can think of all the other things that the world pressures us with today. All those things are mere shadows cast before what was to come. The substance is Christ. Don't tolerate people who try to run your life, ordering you to bow down and scrape, insisting that you join their obsession with angels and that you seek out visions. There are a lot of hot air. That's all they are. They're completely out of touch with the source of life, Christ, who puts us together in one piece, whose very breath and blood flow through us. He is the head. We are the body. We can grow up healthy in God only as he nourishes us. So then if with Christ, Christ, you have put off, you've put all that puffed up and childish religion behind you. Why do you let yourselves be bullied by it? Think about all the things in the world around us that are trying to bully us. Don't touch this. Don't taste that. Don't go near this. Do you think these things are here today and gone to tomorrow worth that kind of attention? Such things sound impressive if said in a deep enough voice. They even give the illusion of being pious and humble and austere, but they're just another way of showing off, making yourselves look important. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.